Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. And today I have a very special return guest. His name is Dr. Vince Houghton. Vince began his career in intelligence as a soldier in the Balkans, was discharged from the Army in 2001, got a Ph.D. in U.S. history with a focus on U.S. intelligence, taught for a while at the University of Maryland, and then for six and a half years was the curator at the International Spy Museum during a critical period when the museum was moving from its old facility to its brand new facilities with a lot of very nice new displays. And since uh, 2020, Vince has been the curator at the National Cryptologic Museum. Vince, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. So I understand from you that the museum has reopened for inside visitation since October. Please tell our audience a little bit more about what you've got to, for them to see. Yeah, so we were closed for about two and a half years, for originally for COVID, but then the decision was made to revamp the entire museum. Part of this coincided when, when I got there and said there are you know, some interesting changes that we can make. Part of it was because during COVID, we did things that you just couldn't do, and most museums can't do when you're open, and that we went through one by one every single artifact that we have in our entire collection, thousands and thousands of them, which we could not have done if we were open. But because we were closed during COVID, we were able to do this. And we have a warehouse full of artifacts. And, and yeah, it looks like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just rows and rows and, and columns of crates that are from, you know, some cases from the World War II period that hadn't been looked in in about 60 years. So it was a real fun adventure for a historian like me to be able to open some of those and see what was there. And once we got a good handle on what we had, what our assets were as an institution, we were able to re kind of rethink what displays we had out. You know, we wanted to say, all right, how can we be unique, right? We're in the Washington, D.C. area. We have to find ways to distinguish ourselves. Why come here when you've got air and space and the history museums and the International Spy Museum and everything else, we figured we needed to do something that no one else was doing. And the good news is, because we're NSA, because we have the resources of the last 70 plus years of NSA and its predecessor agencies collecting artifacts, collecting objects from even before the World War II period, we have things no one else has. We, we have a, almost an entire museum now of things no one else has. In fact, about 85% of the artifacts out on display right now are one of a kind. And they fall into what I call the holy trinity of artifacts. That's an artifact that is the only one of the particular artifact, an artifact that is the first one, so serial number zero, or a prototype of a, an original artifact, or an artifact that was used by a specific person or a specific historical event. Our goal eventually is to get to 100% of the artifacts on display that fall within one or more of those three categories. So I can legitimately say that every single artifact on display here can only be seen here. We're at, though, about 85%, which to me is pretty extraordinary. Most museums can't claim that, right? I mean, as much amazing things that the Spy Museum has, there are cases that are full of examples of artifacts, right? You know, a sabotage case that has a lot of really cool sabotage artifacts, but they're not, it's not the first Beano grenade. It's not the first Caltrop. Right? It's not the only one that's still in existence. We, on the other hand, are striving to get to where every artifact falls within those categories. So in most cases, what you're looking at is the only one of something, the first one of something, uh, or something very specific to a mission or an operation or an individual. 
in cryptologic history. And that that's the promise that we make to the public is that everything you see is real. We made a commitment not to include any replicas. So nothing on display has been manufactured by anyone other than the person that manufactured it for it to be used in the actual mission or operation it was used in originally. And so what this means is that we chose what we put on display very carefully based on our assets that we had. You know, to to mixed reviews, I'll be completely honest about it. There are people who are a little uh, perturbed that certain things aren't on display, uh, that they would expect to be on display. We have no or no exhibit on the Zimmerman Telegram. Everyone's like, how can you not have an exhibit on the Zimmerman Telegram, right? How important was that for American history? It drove us into World War One. Yes, it's an incredibly important American history story, but it's not an important American cryptologic story. We didn't break the Zimmerman telegram. The British broke the Zimmerman telegram. That would be a great exhibit for Bletchley Park or for GCHQ's museum. But in our case, it's an important American story, but it's not an important American cryptologic story. Another interesting thing that we don't cover is Venona, right? You might go, that's ridiculous. How can you not actually have an exhibit on Venona in an NSA museum? Well, I right now don't have original documents. Now, they exist, and I can get my hands on them, but because the building is the building, we don't have the atmospheric conditions necessary to have those kind of one-of-a-kind documents on display. One day we will, but right now we don't. So I'm not going to create fake printout Venona copies for a exhibit that something you can look up online, right? I mean, or you can grab a book that has these in them. I want to show the public the real thing, and I will eventually. I just don't now. And so we had to make those tough decisions. We had to say, what assets do we have that can make us a destination, can make this museum something worth driving up to? So, you know, we're not close to anything, right? We're, we're close to NSA, but for the general public, you've got to make a kind of concerted effort to either schlep up or down here, depending on what you're coming from. Uh, and we want to give the public a reason to do that. We want to give people something to see. And so not only do we have these incredible artifacts on display, but we have multiple new exhibits that had never been possible before. We've talked before about some of the stuff I've written about or about the spy museum. I tend to be very nuclear weapons oriented. That was basically my my doctoral focus was American nuclear intelligence. It just so happened that our reopening coincided with the retiring of some pretty important equipment by the National Security Agency. These are the machines and the servers that make the nuclear codes. So we actually have a exhibit that was never possible for us to have before because of classification issues where the servers that made the nuclear codes and what we call the biscuits, the small um, sealed authenticator system cards that go inside submarines and nuclear silos and bombers that, that ensure that a message to start World War III is actually from the president. All those are now on display inside the Cryptologic Museum. Nuclear command and control is something that we've never been able to cover before because of secrecy, but now we can. And we, we took that opportunity, we grabbed it the second we heard, like, what do you mean that's becoming declassified? Uh, we need to have that inside the museum. Another really cool thing that I think that, that people will enjoy is the partnerships that we've developed since I got here. One of them is with NASA. A lot of people don't think about NASA and secure communications, but NASA needs to have secure communications, not just for their manned missions. You know, think about this multiple space shuttle missions that were for Department of Defense launching different kinds of satellites and systems into space. You obviously need to have encrypted communication when you're dealing with those missions. But also the simple idea of, do you really want a, a teenage hacker sitting in his mom's basement covered in Cheeto dust hacking into your multi-billion dollar drone or, or rover on Mars? Probably not a good idea. Right? I mean, the Curiosity rover is a nuclear-powered SUV-sized rover 
with a laser blaster on it. We don't need that take, being taken over by some hacker in some basement somewhere. So encryption systems and the ability to protect data, the ability to protect assets, it's something that NASA takes seriously, and they don't develop that themselves. Who do they come to? Well, they come to the National Security Agency, right? They come to the agency that is designed to create these kinds of systems. And so that partnership is, is a really fruitful one. Fortunately, and geographically, the center within NASA that deals with communication security is at Goddard, uh, which is right down the street from us, right outside of Washington, D.C. So they have a great relationship with them. We've also built a good relationship with DARPA and some of the DARPA contracting organizations. Uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency is creating all sorts of new and interesting technology, particularly within the cyber defense realm. That's stuff that's very hard for a government museum to show. We want artifacts. How do you do artifacts with cyber, right? We're not just going to put a computer screen there. But because we're working with some of these advanced technology organizations, we have the opportunity to put things in the museum that just aren't anywhere else. Really, what you're going to see if you come here and you've been here before is a shiny, pretty new museum. We redid everything on the inside. And by that, I mean ceilings, walls, floors. Uh, we knocked down walls. We built new walls. We moved everything around. It is a very different experience than what was there before. Many people who have gone to the museum before and gone now say that, you know, they're equally good. It's just different. And I kind of, that's what the motif I go with is the idea that this is, we're kind of looking at this as National Cryptologic Museum 2.0. Not like it's an improvement on the one before. It's not an update or revamp of the one before. It's an entirely new existence. So if you say, oh, I've been to that museum 30 times, I, you know, I went there all the entire 2000s I was there. Well, you haven't been here. I promise you this is a very different museum. And that's really what we're going with here is the, the idea that this is not just a facelift. Uh, this is an entirely new reimagining of what the Cryptologic Museum was. And it's only because I had the fortunate timing to get here during a time when we weren't open. And we could do a lot of these things. We could change a lot of these things that we couldn't do without COVID. I guess it's impossible to say that that couldn't have done any of this without COVID. Right? You know, that that's I guess we turn lemons into lemonade with with the pandemic because we did things with a very small staff uh, that the Smithsonian is now trying to do with a billion dollars and hundreds of people, and we pulled it off in about six months. So we're pretty excited to show everyone what we've done. And one thing I think for your audience, you know, I, you always have to think about who you're talking to, right? So if I'm talking to a group of tourists from Kansas or, or from New Mexico, I'm going to have a very different way of saying things than I am from Mafio, right? Which are, you know, a bunch of people who know this world better than anyone. And I assure you, we've kept your audience in mind when we created this museum. This is not just dumbed down to the point where it's going to appeal to those from outside of town. We made sure that this would be a museum that would appeal to everyone, a museum that has a level of maturity, perhaps, that will appeal to former spooks alike. So we're looking forward to everyone, you know, regardless if they're former NSAers or other agencies to, to come check us out. So I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of what we've done here. Vince, that's a great overview. As I mentioned to you off camera, it was my privilege to serve for a short time out at NSA myself. And I recall that on a number of occasions, we actually went over to the museum to hold various events. Uh, we had some receptions there for foreign uh, delegations. I think we even had at least one SALT meeting there. One of the things that, actually one of the reasons why I was at NSA and one of the things that I learned while I was there is that between the various intelligence agencies, more and more, there's a lot of what we call tipping and queuing within the jargon. Is there any portion of the museum that talks about the collaboration between NSA and other key U.S. intelligence agencies? Yes and no. There's a lot that hints to it. And, and, and really, the, the reason that we don't have this as being foundational 
uh, to the museum is because we are focusing on cryptology, on code making and code breaking, not as much on the singles intelligence mission or the ELINT mission of NSA. Now you can be like, well, that's like 99% of what NSA does. That's why we're not the NSA museum, right? You know, we're not trying to do a holistic approach to all the different things NSA does. We really have our own niche and that niche is cryptology. Now, that's a lot of what NSA does, right? I mean, even part of the signals intelligence process, and you know, I don't like using the word disciple, but the signals intelligence process, 99% of the time, you're not intercepting messages in plain text in the clear. You need translation, you need decryption, you need all the different things that we are a part of. So we allude to joint operations. We, we certainly have close collaboration with the other museums. There's now for the first time, really, because a lot of people that knew each other pretty well are now in charge of a lot of the different IC museums. So we're kind of coming together in a way that had never happened before. Uh, Rob Byer at CIA, I've known for quite some time. He's the head of the CIA museum. The former chief historian uh, of DIA, Greg Elder, is now seconded to ODNI. And so he's taking a lead and trying to bring us all together so that we can be much more, much less siloed and much more kind of conducive to talking about these joint operations and, and you know joint missions. A big part of that is going to be training the next group of intelligence officers using museums and using kind of the history of these different agencies to where we can work together to figure out ways to better make people understand, especially newcomers to the IC, to better understand that it is a community. You know, even before it was capital I, capital C intelligence community, it was a community. Uh, as, as siloed as it might have been, there was still everyone understood that these very important intelligence operations in the past did not just take place within one agency. And so, yeah, we do hint to some of that. We do, because we're a public museum and publicly facing, we have to be careful about what we say because we are 100% unclassified. And so we don't want to step on any toes in any of their agencies. The interesting thing that we're working on, if we're thinking about kind of joint displays or joint exhibits, is unlike Triplogic Museum 1.0, which is very static, where if you had gone to the museum in 1999, you'd basically see the same museum in 2012. We're going to be much more dynamic than we have been in the past. We have multiple areas for temporary exhibits, spaces that are going to be constantly changing. In fact, we're, we're changing into a new exhibit in February uh, for February and March, and then we're going to be doing another one in the summer and then kind of working through trying to find ways to make it different every time you come here so that there's not this sense that, oh, I've been there so many times. There's always going to be something new to look at. Those give us lots of opportunities to do joint exhibits with other agencies. You know, we're, we're in a very informal process right now. We've been talking to ODNI about doing a potential traveling exhibit, including all the intelligence agencies, like picking one historical event. Randomly, let's call the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's, that may or may not be what we're doing. Let's throw that out there. Cuban Missile Crisis is something where just about everybody worked on it, right? That, that is a all-hands-on-deck intelligence problem that really hasn't been described that way in the past, right? There was NSA involvement, there was CIA involvement, DIA involvement. What is now NGA, you know, was NPIC, and all these agencies were involved in successfully negotiating the Cuban Missile Crisis. So why don't we all come together and create a cool exhibit that we can bounce around the country and around the world that is, you know, put together by these different intelligence agencies. So there's a lot that's on the horizon that, you know, will be in the next couple of years where there'll be much more, I mean, joint exhibits, the wrong way to say it, much more collaboration between the different his, history offices and the different museums to try to tell the story of the IC versus just telling the story of one agency. Vince, you touched uh, earlier on a topic that is foundational for AFIO, and that is that a significant subset of our audience is the academic community. How about finishing up on a little bit of a description of what you hope to do for that next generation in the educational sphere? This is a huge question and something that we really take seriously. For the younger 
students out there. Uh, we have a very vigorous education program that we've been running even during the pandemic area. We did it virtually, but now we're back doing it in person where thousands and thousands of students from the area come through the museum and learn about cryptology, learn about the agency, learn about intelligence, right? Because that they're not getting in other places. This is completely free. It's all it takes is an email, right? So if you, some one of your listeners out there has a school that, that doesn't do this and, and it's regional. I mean, we have people coming from as far away as Virginia. It's regional enough for a field trip. We'd love to have those students and at every level, right? From elementary all the way up through high school. We also are working very closely with our K through 12 organization within NSA who does outreach to schools around the area as well. Uh, so from the pre-college perspective, we have a very robust program. One thing that we're working on is to find ways to make research into NSA signals intelligence cryptography easier for the academic community. It's one thing that I, I certainly is near and near to my heart because it can be a pain to try to do research on NSA. CIA has really kind of led the way on this where if you're going to do research on anything agency, you've got to, the first place you go is CIA website, electronic reading room and their FOIA office because they've kind of brought everything together in one place. We haven't done that yet, but we're working on it. Our intent, our dream is to create a research portal that brings everything together in one place. All the research you're going to do on NSA, on crypto, on ELINs, on SIGINTs, all in one place. Now, it all exists in different places, but it's not all in one spot. So we want to be the one-stop shop to create a much easier user interface for researchers. We're working on that. We're in the process of doing that. Our website, which is now museum.nsa.gov, uh, has a, a link for researchers, which brings you up to our, our research library, which has some resources that we're starting to put online. But eventually, our intent is to bring together, to amalgamate Center for Cryptologic History and everything they do that's unclassified, the FOIA office, D-Class, all the research done on NSA from outside and in in one spot so that you don't have to go anywhere else, or at least you can use this as the jumping off point for research that you're doing into the agency or anything else. I can't give you an end point for that, but we're busy at work on it. Uh, it is an absolute priority for us. And that's what makes this museum more than just the four walls that holds the artifacts is what kind of makes us a global institution. And we're, we have buy-in from the agency. We have buy-in from everyone who matters. Uh, it's just a question of, can we get, we have, our staff is seven people. And that includes running the museum, designing new exhibits, new programming, and everything else that is involved with running a museum. You know, can I pair that to, you know, the hundred and whatever people that work at the Spy Museum? It's very different. So we're going as fast as we can, but that is absolutely our intent, that one day, sometime soon, there will be one place you can go to to start your research and sometimes even to complete your research, because we're going to dump as much stuff onto it as we possibly can. Well, that's a great virtual tour of the National Cryptologic Museum. I want to thank Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum and the National Security Agency for inviting us in for this interview. Hey, no problem, Jim. Again, you can go hit up our website, museum.nsa.gov. Uh, we have hours that are a little different than people remember before. We're open every Saturday. So there's no excuse anymore that you have to work or anything like that. You can always come and check us out. Same old building, the inside is very new. So come, come for a visit. We love to have you. Sounds great. 